Maceo. My man, Matt. What's up, bro? I'm great, man. Great to have you here. Likewise. I'm glad to be here. Welcome to, well, welcome back to Austin, I guess. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we've been kept, we've been catching up here. Yeah, a couple years now, right? Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Sean. Yeah, worry. Big up Lala. Worry yeah. So um, what you got going on at South by Southwest this year? Uh, once again, here DJing everywhere. I got a DJ gig with Fat Lip from the far side. Uh, and also, I got a show with the crew, Daylight Show. Oh, sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's at, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> don't just, you just don't got here. That one. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, I remember last year you guys played a, 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 an amazing show I wasn't even able to get to with, with Brandy and uh, a bunch of people. Oh, man. Was it the Roots show? That was right, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we just popped up. Honestly, we weren't even scheduled to perform. Really? Because um, you're right. Um, Red and Meth was on it, too. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Myself and Paz just showed up. And then um, the Roots was doing Stay Cool. Which is the same music, That's just right. ego tripping. That's right. And we came out and we just rocked. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, it was fun. It's yeah. always fun rocking with the Roots, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. I mean, they're the they're the pros, the mm-hmm. best band in the biz. Yeah, real talk. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And so, um, so what what are you guys working on right now? You guys working on some new? Um, music? working on this um record with Pete Rock and Primo. Whoa. Also working on um Artificial Intelligence Part Three. Just um. Fulfilling some ideas and commitments that we didn't quite fulfill in the past. Um, this Pete Rock and Primo idea have been festering for a couple of years now. Wow. And um, also the AOI 3 is just the completion of the trilogy of artificial intelligence that we never got to uh, complete with Tommy Boy. Right. And then um, here it is. The label we worked with after Tommy Boy didn't want that particular record because they felt like it was taboo. How come? Well, you know, one label doesn't want to continue the last label's oh. thing. They sure. feel like it might be a lack of success there, you know? Yeah. No spillovers. Everybody likes to start fresh. Sure, yeah. You know? And also, it's a, it had been a pretty expensive record to make, so we kind of figured out how to make this record cost efficiently. I mean, you guys know Pete Rock and Primo for a long time? Forever. Yeah. Um, been knowing those guys. I think I could say I know Pete since 90. Wow. And definitely been knowing Prem since about 88, 89. Wow. Yeah. 88, 89, seeing Prem and, and, and Guru around the clubs in New York when they were on Payday Records. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And J-Ru was on Payday as well. Yep, J-Ru was on Payday. I, I met J-Ru, I'd say, maybe 91. Oh, cool. Yeah, but Prem, been knowing Prem since like 88, 89. We all pretty much recorded at Calliope Studios, too. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where is that exactly? That's in... Calliope Studios was on 37th Street, uh, 37th and 7th Avenue. Is it still there? Um, I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt it. The building is there, but I don't think the studio is there at all. Do you guys you guys record um, at a studio now like like that or is it most of the recording done at home? Um, everybody has home studios now. We've we've had studios at home since the third album, pretty much. Oh, you okay. Know? Yeah, but also we still go to the studio now. We still get up and go to different studios. Prem actually got a studio in in New York. Is it headquarters? Is it the old D and D? No, no, no. It's not. It's a different spot, non disclosed area. <laughs> <laughs> Because that was the sound of New York for a long time. D&D was like a... Like, uh, right? I wouldn't say it was the sound, but it was a spot where 
a lot of artists would record. It was it came pretty much after Calliope, you know. It had more of a home studio loft kind of feel as opposed to just a studio. Yep. Like really being in a, a actual studio. It was more of a cool out spot with, with equipment, you know. People would just hang out there? Would hang out. Yeah. The lounge area had a pool table and all of that stuff. So, you know, you would able, you were able to go up there and hang out at different people's studio sessions just to kind of vibe. and. Wow. Yeah. Did you spend a lot of time there? Not really. No. I would go up to D&D every now and again. Um, it was a little too grimy for me. <laughs> you know, enough. I was at a different space in my life. I was shaving a lot of the grime. Every now and again, although it was a lot of great music that came out of there, there would be problems up there. Yeah. Yeah. And I just kind of, I had a family and kids to go home to. You know what I mean? Speaking of which, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was on the grind date. That was, was the grind date after you got out of the record deal? Yeah. yeah. Um, the grind date was totally after Tommy Boy folded. Okay. Tommy Boy had folded in somewhere around 2003 or something like that. And um, pretty much we were moving around in the WIA system for a minute, trying to figure out which one of those subsidiary labels we were going to end up at. Electra had a lot of interest, Sylvia Rohn. But the direction of the music, um, well, the direction they wanted us to go with, with our music, wasn't favorable. Put it like this. I was willing to try it, but I knew that wasn't really the sole direction. Mm -hmm. And the direction they really wanted us to have was um, working closely with Timbaland. Oh. Yeah. And More it, pop. I wouldn't say pop. You know, I think um, what Timbaland did happened to go pop. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he didn't necessarily make pop music because when sure. he was when he was doing a lot of what he was doing for Missy and his own group um, with uh, what Magoo? was it? Magoo, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was more in uh, the essence. Yeah, it was in the lane of the essence. I I like the fact that Tim was, you know, and it's just me judging from the from afar. He was mixing a bit of like drum and bass with his sound. Like a UK flavor. Yeah, he yeah. had that flavor. You know, drum and bass. Uh, um, uh, what was the other? Two-step kind of had that mixed yeah. in a little bit. You know, but the which, bass lines and, yeah, the, and which, the instrument sounds. Yeah, which I thought was really cool, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, it solely being De La sound, I didn't see that, you know. We were way too diverse and unique for that. Because, I mean, Stakes is High, would you say that was a departure as well in a big way, would you say, from, like, the previous albums? I would say Stakes is High was just more of a serious record. Right. I think what people um, know from the previous records were a lot of humor. Yeah. And um, I think the only thing that got stripped from Stakes, from Stakes is High was the humor. Mm. You know, things weren't really funny and fun during that, during that time period. Mm. Yeah. And at the same time... Um, just um, coming of age as men with all these responsibilities and now your childhood dream is your career. Right. You know. And now you have children. And having children, yeah. responsibilities of owning a home and things like that and be just being responsible for other people's lives altogether, yeah. running a business, all of that. So, and then here it is being at the center of hip-hop culture and this this change that's happening with what was going on with 
Biggie, Pac, Wu-Tang, Nas. You know, this was this true birth of um, the solo MC, too. That's a good point. Yeah, you I know? didn't think of that. Yeah, it was, um, come on, even Wu-Tang was going in different directions. Each member started to do solo records and stuff like that, too. That was a great business plan from RZA. Yeah, yeah, great, great, great business model. Great plan for the crew, all yeah. of that, you know. Um, but it was a turning point for us on letting us know whether there was still a space in this game for us or not. So stakes were high. Stakes are still high. Yeah. Yeah. Because on the grind date as well, um, with the, speaking about family, I noticed on, you know, there's the calendar and the, and the liner notes. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah, yeah. But it has, one of the things I always noticed was the way that you guys had like you guys basically put your your tour schedule, your production schedule, like the way you guys were making records, mm -hmm. and you'd have, you know, Paul's personal day, Mace's personal day, yeah. this person away, and it looked like you guys really had everything organized so that you could manage your time effectively. Well, we try to, you know, um, you can always map out the calendar, but then it's always subject for change. Yeah, you can never omit the natural disasters that could possibly take place. Measles, mumps, chicken pox, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or just... Dental appointments. Yeah, or, or, or just share, you know, I miss my dad, I need my dad to be home kind of deal, you know? So all of them things, you know, death in the family, all those kind of things still happen. Real life things still go on, man, you know? That can interrupt a real in-depth schedule, you know? So yeah, I mean, yeah, the dream becoming a real profession and something that's highly supportive of our families, you know? And then trying to balance all of that out. It was a lot easier to do when you were just yourself, you know? But when you started implementing others' lives, here come the woman, here come the child, here come more children, you know? Yeah, providing a place for them. Yeah, that. all of that. Is there a, like, was that like a big part of, like how, I mean, you've done, you've you guys tour like all the time still. Yeah, yeah. You play a lot. Yeah. Um, is that being like, what are the big learnings for you from that? Um, you know, how to manage the, you know, that those sorts of things. How do you make those things priorities? Is that like something that you guys still struggle with or is it? I mean, you definitely struggle with it because here it is, you know, here it is. I got sons who play sports. Right. Yeah. Your son is a, a football player. Yeah. Very good. Both, both my sons play sports. Um, two of my sons, two out of three sons play sports. Wow. And um, here it is. Sports and music falls on the weekend. Of course. So think about it. How many games I've missed just because I have to go out and do what I got to do to provide, you know? So, yeah, you know, you miss some moments, you know, on both ends of the spectrum, you yeah. know? I have to miss some moments with the music because I need to be at some games, you know? And then here it is. I'm missing more games and music because obviously this is the life that, I, that, that I've chose to pay my bills <laughs> totally. yeah and it's a, and and you know the industry is is challenging too right like yeah it's, very kinda, challenging is very it, very challenging does it does it get easier for like a, or is it kind of like something you want to keep maintaining like i think that's i mean there's very few people i can even think of in hip-hop that have had a career as as illustrious and as long as your guys well i think um business is never easy it just get tiring yeah you know you do it as such because you love what you do, you know? And you try to be savvy about it, especially when you up against um, 
periodically up against shady people, you know, who uh, doesn't respect your value, you know, or don't see it. So you are constantly in this uh, mental war of negotiations all the time, you know, and it becomes a bit of a stressful process sometimes, you know, especially when you want to focus on your art. You know, and you want to focus on your family. You want to focus on all the good and fun stuff. Yeah. But, you know, it's the tedious, dirty stuff that you got to get through to get to the fun stuff, you know. Yeah. And that's a never-ending process. But you feel like you guys have, I mean, like you guys have made some pretty big decisions and, and, and big, you know, you've made a lot of ground in, in doing things for yourself and yeah, taking yeah, a lot of control. Absolutely. I mean, who wouldn't want to? You yeah. know what I mean? Like. It's a part of business in any business. You yeah. know what I mean? You got to have control of your own thing. Is there a lot of liberation in that feeling? Of- Absolutely. It's, there's always liberation in running your own thing. I think if anybody can attest of working for someone, it could be difficult, especially when you got strong ideas. You know, um, one, having strong ideas that can help a situation grow, let alone two, you know, you know, you work so hard, you're worth more than what somebody could even be paying you, you know? Right. So, um... It's hard to value music, right? Like... Um, it's not when you know what you achieved with it. Right. You know, um... Or it shouldn't be. Well, put it like this. It's not hard for me to value myself based on what I've achieved, you know? Those are the things I've learned early on. I knew what my position was when I first got my deal. I knew what my position was once I sold some records. Yeah. You know, um, the biggest trick in the music business, they want you to not care about the money because they even try to sell that to the fans too. Yeah. Where, you know, where your fans are beat on your back because they feel like all you care about is money. That's a lie, you know. Yeah. What it is is that... um. I want to make money off what I love to do, you know. I love making music. And you're really good at it. <laughs> and if I'm good at it, I want to make money off of it, you know. Um, we all love to be in business with what we love to do, you know, mm. and continue to de- to deliver that passion, you know. It's, it's a good feeling when you know you can wake up every day focused on your true initiatives you know as opposed to waking up (laughs) i never you know dreamed of pumping gas at a gas station for the rest of my life (laughs) yeah exactly but it was something that i did when i was a teenager and i knew that i needed some ends to get to what i was trying to do yeah i did the same but i did not expect to be working at Texaco for the rest of my life (laughs) you know yeah i did plan on quitting it that job the same year i got it (laughs) you know just wanted it for what i needed it for and move on to the next thing you know so yeah you know i i I guess i truly want the world to know the fans to know and and i want to speak on the behalf of everyone in hip-hop culture yo man we want to make money off what we love to do we all believe in getting rich and generation wealth and all of that you know um I think there's an authenticity in making money when you doing it for what you really love. You yeah. know, that should always be the reward, especially when you're doing it good. When you're doing a good job, you should be rewarded 
100 you know yeah. what i mean so and that's like you guys have stayed together as a group through that all as is there a, i mean has that helped you guys in a, in a lot of ways you know you said you know individuals when they're out on their own they're kind of at the mercy of you know people as individuals but as a group does that has that helped you know that has its challenges too you know sure. what i mean i mean when you're running a business collectively with your friends that you started this with you know everybody can be on a different page sometimes yeah at times you know um and getting on that same page could take a few meetings sure you know take a few arguments you know um but I think what we've learned is respecting everyone's perspective. You know, I think it was something that we learned from out the gate, you know, especially um, through the guidance of Prince Paul. I think in our creative session, it started with that, you know, that led to our professional. Because you know? he, he'd started it. Well, he started a thing with us that required um, just being open to everyone's idea. You know, no idea is a bad idea. Right. You know. You got to be diplomatic. You got to try it. Mm. You don't know if it's a good or bad idea until you actually try it, you know. And we're not sold on anything until we all we all can collectively say, this is dope. We mm. feel good about this, you know. So it's, it's stuck in this unit until the world, till we actually sanction the world get get to hear it you know so i think it was something we learned early on by going hey i don't really hear what he's trying to do but i'm a backup and let him do his thing you know and we've all done that with one another and we learned that from paul you know and mind you it's like you know there's been ideas and i mean stuff like that still happens to this very day you know people be strong on what they feel but then back up just to see where it's gonna go you know, and and can be honest enough in the final hour going, yo, I didn't see it, but now that we're in the end of it, I see it, and it works. It's dope. I got to give it up. Yeah, you know congrats. what I'm saying? So that had always been a, a, a great experience amongst the three of us, you know, that I'll have to say was implemented by Paul early on, you know. Shout you out know. Prince Paul. Yeah, or every time, every yeah. time. Yeah, word up. Cool. So I just want to make a bit of a pivot to more of your DJ career now. Yes, sir. Like, what was your first exposure to DJ culture? My first exposure was 1976. A dude named Rick, who uh, is that a DJ name? A dude uh, named Rick? Nah, nah. <laughs> that, that would be cool, right? right nah, not in '76. <laughs> His name probably would have been like Rick Ski or some shit like that. <laughs> Master Rick or something, you know, yeah. Grandmaster Rick. I don't know, <laughs> but I knew Rick. He was um this uh, woman by the name of Danielle, who was like a sister to me because my mom dated her father, um, and she is truly like a big sister to me. And it was her boyfriend, oh cool, who had DJ equipment, and he would let me play his stuff, play his music. The minute I was able to really conceive it. And I was just sitting by it and knew I couldn't touch it, you know. And, of course, you know, here it is being an adult now. And you look at kids, you could tell when they want to do something. <laughs> <laughs> I was that kid, you know. Like, I wanted to touch it, but I knew I couldn't. And he let me mess with his turntables. 
he let me scratch the hell out of Good Times and Super Sperm and by Captain Sky yeah. and uh, Catch a Groove. These are all the classic. These, these are all the records that was around. Uh, Frisco Disco, uh, when it was like a 12 inch 45. RPM? All these RPM, yeah. 45 RPM, but on a 12. Like a Disco 12. Disco 12, and it was had all these colors on it. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like a rainbow record. Oh, wow. I mean? Yeah. I think uh, Frisco Disco was a record that actually represented the gay community. Okay. But it had this break in it. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Dun, dun. So that was the record, you know. And yeah, it was all those records that I got to uh, play with on Rick's DJ set. Fuck it up. Everything. <laughs> and um, yeah, 76 was the time I conceived DJing, was messing around with turntables. That was like my toy in the house whether it was um rick's dj set or my aunt's record player you know and then um i got my first dj mix in 79. what was that like it was a spear sonic mixer up and down fader no, no cross fader. no cross fader at the time up and down fader um that was my first dj mixer and then my uncle helped me put two record players together to make turntables Literally record players. <laughs> the record players with the. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was like my first set that I ever mixed on, and I learned how to blend by. I learned how to blend by using, um, you know, the plastic wax from the wax paper from the Chinese restaurant. Oh yeah. That came with the fried chicken. You know, put the fried chicken in the wax. Paper. So it didn't spill. I I used the wax paper from the fried chicken because it would be the grease would be embedded. Oh wow! On the wax, so yeah. it helped the record slip like back. A slip mat. It was like my first slip mat. Wow. You know, and that's what I would use, and I would play records, pretty much around the same tempo. This back when you could play the entire record, so it was like, come on, if a record was seven eight minutes, you had time to blend. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So I was kind of using the wax paper to help me blend you know stay on the groove of the blend to be able to switch to the next record on beat because i had no pitch control oh wow there, there was no pitch on, on the turntables on those, on those turntables well, it wasn't even turntables they were literally <laughs> record players it were like component systems with the amp built in built in and he figured out how to lift it up and unplug the record player from the the uh, uh the connected amp wow and, and and plug it into the DJ mixer and then back into the amp to generate sound out to the speaker. <laughs> the links, the links you guys go to, man. It's crazy. These days, just plug it in and it goes. Hey, when you pour and you really got to drive to do something that you love and then, you know, and then once I, hey, once I was on that, I was happy, but then I knew my limitations and I knew the next step I had to get to. And the next step I had to get to was like some real technique turntables and, that's when you start to think of different things to make some money to get what you need. Now, I saw, I, when I was a young man, I watched a, a documentary by the BBC, and they have this part where they talk about De La Soul and you in particular, and they have you breaking down, making a beat, and you use, you use an S950 yeah. Akai thing. Uh -huh. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I remember that day. I still haven't saw that. Really? I have not saw that documentary, but I remember that day. That was a really influential... It was in my house. 
it was in my basement in my house where I was creating my music. My records was everywhere. Yeah, and I went through a, like a a little layout of how I sampled, I guess. Yeah. Looped up a little guitar loop. Yeah, I looped up a, 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 a David Sam, Sanborn record along with um, some beat that was some drum track. I forgot. Oh, yeah, I forgot. But I do remember the day. I'm just going through a... I forgot what I used, put it like that. I remember it being a David Sanborn record and I think some Bismarcky hits of Biz's voice and I made a beat on the spot, yeah. So you you'd still do a lot of production? Absolutely. And you, you did, have you done production uh, like the whole time as like De La Soul as well? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm responsible for me, myself and I. That's um, you? Yeah, we all collectively worked on it, but that was my interest introduction um because you're a big p-funk fan yeah massive right myself and paul yeah absolutely oh. big p-funk fan uh my first p-funk concert was 1976 wow my my uncle and my mom took me to that took me to that concert took me and my brother to that concert at madison square garden wow that was madison square garden Madison square garden yeah did they have the spaceship they had the spaceship they had um Cernos flying through the arena on the bird, <laughs> wow. all of that, like Bootsy rocking. It was one of the best nights of my life as a kid. Um, I'll never forget my mother saying, this is the first and only time you can curse in front of me without getting in trouble. <laughs> and I was able to, shit, goddamn, get off your ass and jam. That was it. I was good with that, you know. My brother fell asleep as usual. Uh, um, yeah, that was um, an exciting moment in my life because then to turn around, what, 20 years later, 96, I'm on stage with them relanding the mothership in Central Park. So, Serious? Yeah, yeah. And I got to, God bless the dead, my uncle who, who passed now, but I got to bring him to that show. You know, him and my mother came to that show and we got to relive a moment. You know, re relive a moment that was clearly a, a instrumental part of my childhood and influenced me to sample George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah, and then I did other records like um, uh, Afro Connections, my record. Oh, cool. Keeping the Faith is my record. Um, it's a jam. Um, Swing a Logate is my record. Um, I mean, it's always been a collective thing and then an individual thing. Um, um, Ego Trippin' is my record. Oh, wow. Um, um, oh, man. Man, I mean, a couple joints, man. How about um, you, you, when you guys collaborated with, with uh, the Gorillas on Feel Good Inc.? Yeah. Your voice starts <laughs> that record off. Yo, what's bugged out about that, man? Um, I got in a lot of fights over my laugh. Really? Coming up, yeah. I, I, You know, coming up in New York, first of all, New York happened to be a place where if you were too jovial, you were, you were deemed a sucker. And I'm just jovial by nature, man. You know, I'm... I'm one of the loveliest I, people I, I, I know, man. I'm glad to be a jovial dude the more I reflect on it in my old, older years, you know. But I did used to get a lot of problems, 
you know, behind being jovial. And then I think somewhere along the the early 90s through mid-90s, I started to adopt the alma mater. If you knock my smile off my face, then there's a problem, mm. you know. Then it's definitely a problem because I am a dude who's smiling and happy all the time. So if I'm not, then there's a problem. Something's up. Something's going on. Somebody did something to me, mm. you know. But throughout my younger years, you know, I used to get into some issues, which um, helped me how to fight. Because <laughs> you box, right? I boxed a little bit. Yeah. yeah, I boxed a bit. You know, I like this, man. You, you know, if you ain't never lost a fight, you ain't have one. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's true. So after getting my ass kicked enough, you know, you turn around, you deliver some ass whoopings after you get your ass whooped enough. Yep. You know, so. Trial by fire, I guess. Yeah, and you get tired of certain shit, you know. But then fast forward, you know, to the future of this rap career and then meeting the gorillas and bugging out in the studio with Dave and he write this rhyme and he hears my laugh in his rhyme. So he's like, Mace, I need you to do the laugh. Because here it is, the laugh. I actually started to really do the laugh. It was at the end of Stakes is High. Get ready. We was in the. We was already in the recordings of the first AOI, and um, feeling this liberating feeling like, yo, we made our mark. We still here, you know. Like, I think we got tenure in this now. Yeah, you know? Stakes so, High was a success, right? Well, well, Stakes is High was a weary moment going into it. You know, like, if this record don't really do it for us, then we gonna call it quits. You know, mm. you know, it was a real feeling of bowing out gracefully, you know. Um, but uh, behind Stakes is High doing what it was doing and also getting the embracement from the hip-hop community, not just the music industry, you know. Here it is. We had uh, all the artists that was coming up on Raucous Records, you know. That was like a big springboard, you know, to see uh, Raucous being a label that's coming up. Doing well, too. Doing really well and doing what Tommy Boy used to do, you know. Or what, what was sh- that, like shine a light on, on people or emerging talent or something? Yeah, emerging talent. Um, you know, Tommy Boy at one point sat at the forefront of the culture by really experimenting and trying dope shit, whether it sold or not, you know. Mm. There was lot of groups like Black by the Man, you know, there was so many groups that didn't make it, but Tommy Boy would experiment in putting things out, you know. Did Dante have any, Dante Ross have any help? Um, I would say it was a collective. Okay. He definitely played a part, but then at one point Dante left, you know what I'm saying? But there was the, it, it, it was, um, it was a collective, you know, because of course a lot of things came across his table across his desk, but um, I don't think Latifah would ever got signed had we not been like, yo. She's the one. You need to you need to get with that, you yeah. know what I mean? And she's being produced by Mark the 45 King, you right. know what I mean? Like, wow. you know, there was always some affirmation because artists was always up at the label, like, Tommy Boy used to be a great place to be at one time, especially when it was on 86th Street. I think, um, Things started to change, obviously, when people start to catch on to their business practice, you know. 
and then you started to fall back on you begin to fall back on sharing ideas and concepts with the label because of the Sambo concept, you know? I'm giving more than what I'm actually getting out of this relationship, you know? And They're know, taking credit for it, kind yeah, of? Yeah, and they take, not only taking credit for it, but, you know, put it like this. There's no wrong with, there's not a problem with them taking credit for, you know, ideas you're just sharing in conversation, but don't shit on me in my own situation with you you know what i mean like it was that that was going on you know it was uncomfortable moments at times when you start to learn more and more about the business you're in mm-hmm. you know what i mean um so here it is you began to fall back based on you, you you're witnessing people just uh pricking you and using you for your ideas and not really um compensating you for it or putting you in a in a position to grow on an administrative level. Like when you start to learn, like, okay, here's the deal. I'll be very candid. Um, once, once upon a time, the executive producer used to be called the production supervisor. Okay. Before it was the executive producer. It was called the production supervisor. Um, I don't think I would have ever credit that to Dante Ross. Oh. I would accredit that to Prince Paul, if anybody, you know. But he got credited, production supervisor, mm. which is almost like being an executive producer of Three Feet High and Rising. And I personally wouldn't accredit him that. I would accredit Prince Paul that. If anything, Dante Ross would have been the A&R director. Yeah. You know what I mean? As I began to learn what these roles were, you know. Also, at the time, when I think back, Myself and Pass in particular probably should have caught more production credit, you know? Because, I mean, to this day, I, I didn't know that, like, you produced yeah. these records. Yeah, and that's what makes things difficult when you're trying to move on in the business as a producer. Get your publishing. Because, well, I got my publishing. All of that is all fair and love under what we do collectively as a group. Yeah. But when you're trying to actually pursue the business outside of the group, you know, you people don't know your work. They don't know your efforts. They think all the efforts is Prince Paul. You know what I'm saying? And that never really was the case. It was always a collective effort, you know? Here it is, even a lot more of the actual singles were myself and Paz, you know, except for the likes of Ring, Ring, Ring. Right. That was Paul. And then here it is, even Ring, Ring, Ring was uh, something we all collectively built on as well mm. you know conceptually yeah, yeah like you know paul brought the meat and potatoes off the track to the table but then there was always that room and freedom to build on it you know with everybody's track you know it was like if you heard something it was we were like musicians when it came to samples it's collaborative yeah it was always a collaborative effort you know but i will give paul the credit for yeah ring 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 was his thing yeah you know me, myself, and I was my thing. Millie pulled the pistol. Was Paul? You know what I'm saying? I know was Pass. Say no go. Pass. You know what I'm saying? Um, I mean, ghetto thing. Dave. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, here it is. The likes of the entire sound on Stakes Is High is Dave. Really? Yeah. Or you know, 
there's only one thing produced by JD, and that's the title track. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that's true, actually. That's it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But very impactful, and 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 um and and I think um, not only because it's the title track, but I think that particular track coming from Dilla sounded like nothing else he's ever done. Oh yeah, you know. So it's there was crazy. so much emphasis on that because based on what he did for Farside, what he did for Tribe, what he did for Buster, that was completely different. You couldn't signature that being a Dilla track. I'd never heard anything like that. You know, and may you know to this day, it's like you know, so well, unique. The beauty I felt our relationship was with Dilla is that um, he did his version of Dela. Mm. He didn't do his version of Tribe. He didn't do his version of Slum V. He didn't even do his version of Buster with us. He did his version of Dela. Mm. So that's what was always appreciative, knowing like he came in like a member. Mm. You know. That's really... He came in like a member. Like, like he was like... I, I, you know, from talking to Dilla, like, he, he, he talked from a place of, like, being a member of the group, of being a member of Native Tongue. You know, had he been down in 87, 88, 89, he, he'd probably been a big glue to holding the Native Tongue together, probably. You know what I mean? There was so much of that in his spirit when he came around, you know? So, you know, that is something I truly felt from him, you know, that he wanted to be sure that he brought his version of Dela, mm -hmm. not his version of Slum Village. And that was probably coming from a place of, like, you know, as a, a musician. As a musician, a musician or a true producer and someone who truly got love, you know really what I mean? Really loved what you guys Truly did. got love, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, you know, that was my man. You know what I mean? We we smoked blunts, sipped penny. You know what I mean? You know, I, I I had enjoyed great moments with him and Frank and Dank. You know what I'm saying? You know, him, Frank and Dank, moments I, I, I got to share that no one else got to share. We've all had our moments together where we were in our quirky, nerdy world. I got to be... <laughs> I got to share the dark side of life with Della a little bit. <laughs> Him and Frank and Dank, you know what I mean? And if you hear Frank and Dank's music, you know what time it is. <laughs> I got some I got some Frank and Dank trials. I know what you mean. Um, and then on Stakes is High also, though, um, and this is something I, I've heard that you were part of, was introducing Most Deaf. Yeah. I guess I'll give myself enough credit for that. Because I always like to say... Um, you know, Most is an, is an amazing talent. I always knew he was, you know. And my introduction to meeting Most was on the poetry circuit. And I knew Most was an actor already. You know, I had been following him, and he had been staying pretty low-key with the acting. But I had been following him. Um, I mean, I love entertainment. so, And I knew he was on the Cosby Mysteries, and then... um. At the time, he was really close friends with um, a girl who used to dance for us by the name of Asia. She danced with us during our first and second album. And um, she introduced me to Most. Well, she said Most was trying to reach out. This was uh, pre-Deaf Poetry Deaf Poetry Jam. He was doing poetry readings around New York. Um, Most and his mom owned a museum in Brooklyn. 
It was like this little mini boutique museum that they had, and they were doing um, poetry readings in the basement. So he called me out as a DJ, you know, to play that segment of, like, how they were doing Deaf Comedy Jam. Oh, okay. You know, he wanted a DJ segment in between uh, the poets. So between me and Cypher Sounds, we were switching off doing these gigs with, with, with most. And it was after one poetry reading, um, dudes was outside freestyling. And most jumped into the cypher. And I was like, oh shit, he can rap too. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had that feeling by the way he delivered his poetry. But when I saw him in the cypher, you know, this corky looking dude wearing Timberland sandals with gold fronts in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> He's got you style. Know? He had Bohemian Brooklyn all in him, you know? <laughs> Um, wearing a, a, a duck mouth kango, you know, and um, he was rhyming with mums and a couple of other poets who I thought were nice, and they were doing their thing. It was in the cipher, and after it, I was like, "Yo, man, you know you could rhyme like that, man. You, you real nice, man." He's like, "Yeah, I love this, man. You know." He's like, "I was hoping, you know, I could maybe uh." do some music with Daylight one day, you know? Wow. And I was like, man, we'll see where that goes. I was like, you definitely nice. We need to try some stuff out. But then also in the midst of all of this, there was a record that I had was hearing called, um, uh, what was the title of the record? Put it like this. The group was called UTD, Urban Thermodynamics. Was, but they became Medina Green, is that right? And they became Medina Green. Most Def was a member in that group. That's right. I did not know. I had the record. I was loving the record. It wasn't until I saw the video on Ralph McDaniels, and this had to have been like a week and a half, two weeks after that poetry reading and seeing him rhyme outside and all of that. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, you know, the video came on Ralph McDaniels, I had been sitting on the record, white label at that. Oh, okay. You know, sitting on the record, playing this shit, loving it. Um, I believe uh, Evil D, no Diamond D, did Wait, a, the beat? did a remix for oh, okay. it. Um, and I'm like, this record is crazy, you know. Diamond D on a beat score is gonna be crazy. And, and and then um, the video comes on, and I'm like, oh shit, that's most. <laughs> So I call him the same day, and I'm like, dude, I'm like, what's up with you, man? Like, you got this record? I've been sitting on the re this record. I love this record. You ain't tell me nothing about it. You know, like, what's up with you, man? I'm a little aggravated with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you holding out on me? Right? Yeah, he's basically holding out. And um, and then and it, it went from there. Like, I, I always like to say me and most discovered each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um. He knew this is the route he wanted to come, and damn, he manipulated it well. <laughs> you know, he stayed low key with the acting because he wanted to do rapping first. He wanted the world to know him for emceeing and being a real MC, a true MC. Um, he's one of the artists I think that did really well in separating music from television and movies. Um, because it's not like 
most need to do a record to sell a movie or a movie to sell a record is what I've seen some artists do. You right. know what I mean? He doesn't need that at all. Um, he's a true artist. He's a true artist and the, on, on, on both sides of the fence. On both sides of the fence. Um, I think he knew if he went big screen first, rapping would be hard to do. Yeah. Especially at that period in time. That's a great a great deal of foresight to, to know that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm glad to really be a part of um his development in this whole hip hop thing. Um he never really needed no advice, you know. He was somebody who clearly knew what he wanted to do. I think the only advice I lent to him was staying at Raucous for that 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 short period, you know, making him really see the dollars and cents in that relationship, being able to make a a lot of money off a small thing, you know, and that's just reflecting on my own situation, and going, yo man, do it different, just Such do it a different, gift, man. you know, you could be a big fish in a small pond over there. Raucous is just coming up, and you're like. You could do major things right now. Already it was like Jive Records was calling him. Geffen was calling him. You know, Majors was calling him. This was a major label thing at this period in his time. His status was that. His status was there. Mm-hmm. Come on, he was rocking with us. And his his value was building strong with no record deal. You mm-hmm. know, we took him on tour, everything. You know, tour, you know, most was an additive to what we were doing. You know, um, not like... We needed him, but when we had him, it was that much more. You know what I mean? And he put in the work. He was like, you know, he was crowd surfing and all kinds of shit, you know. He picked up on the routines quick, you know what I mean? He, it was it was dope that he, he fell in line, you know, with what was happening with the routine, you know. And then the way we positioned him to do his thing when it was time for him to either do his one or two songs or even when we did Big Brother Beat, like he was a, a, just a total good marriage to what we were all developing and doing, you know? And then to have those options, I was like, bro, stay at Raucous, be a big fish in a small lake, f- at least for a little while, you know? Um, you could totally structure this deal the way you want. You know, I don't want to go into the intricacies of yeah. his numbers and things like that, but you know, that, that first single he did with Raucous, he did really well, you know, and he did well in keeping his options open where, you know, I think most did the best business. He, he did the best business in this music and, and acting far as I'm concerned, you know, where if you could see how he moved, he moves totally free, you know, he, he has the freedom to do a lot, you know. He benefited from your experience through that. Yeah. Anybody who has some tremendous success learn from their comrades or, you know, who they look up to, you know, based on what we've done and what we didn't do, you know. And um, there were some things in in our personality that didn't allow us to do certain things. But I felt most could do it. I felt Common could do it, you know. You know, one of the biggest things they had going for them is not having to share a decision. Mm. They're their own decision maker, you know? And each member in Daylight is a front man in their own right, 
you know, it's all how, how you swing the diamond, you know. Um, things I would want Poss to do, he wouldn't do based on his front row, you know. And um, But I clearly saw that most could do it. I clearly saw that Common could do it, you know. And um, and I'm glad it all worked out for them, really, really, you know. I think De La's alma mater was always just to focus on music and being a group, you know. Um, people always told me I should be going into TV or what have you, but I, I didn't see all of that stuff, stuff for myself, I guess, until now. Yeah. You know, um, just based off of doing stuff like the Gorillas and things like that gave me a little more inspiration and Sean and and the other friends telling me like, yo, Mace, you got this character that you could kind of explore a little bit more. Oh yeah. But I always saw myself in the executive record company type of position, I guess, that most DJs end up going into. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I, I always felt myself to be a true art art <laughs> Right. For the culture, you know. Um, I come from the essence of really being that backbone to an MC, you know, and helping them see the broader, the broader picture of an audience as opposed to what they just see. Because sometimes an MC slash artist can only, sometimes can only see within their, their circumference, you know. They don't really think about the rest of the world sometimes. And then you got the flip side where you got that artist who see too much of that, you know. Um, I try to help bring that balance in what they need to do for themselves and then also what they need to do for the people that they want to buy their music. You know what I mean? Like, come on, we DJs. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's a DJ perspective in yeah. a way, right? Yeah, it's definitely a DJ perspective of actually reading the crowd, reading the audience. Seeing what works. Yeah, what works. And, and, and having the ability and the blessing to travel the world, I see it a lot broader from culture to culture, mm-hmm. demo to demo, you know? So bringing those bringing those ideas back home to the creative nature of what we do, you know, I always saw myself in those roles, you know. Would you want to do that still? Like, yeah, hell yeah. I mean, I, I do it naturally. I can't help myself. <laughs> Honestly, I can't even help myself. So it just it just comes, you know. Um, only time I, I find myself falling back is when um, when I feel no one is really appreciative or you could tell when somebody's actually trying to steal your ideas, yeah. you know what I mean? Or all, all they want you around is f- just for that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, you be, you be, you begin to feel the maliciousness in what people intent is for having you around. You know? t- sucking the, sucking, the energy Yeah, away. sucking you dry, yeah. you know? The L.A. way. <laughs> I call it the <laughs> L.A. way. Because you know how Los Angeles is. You know, they all like uh, to suck everybody dry. The Los Angels, you know. <laughs> There's People, a couple good folks, but I, I mean, know, I know a, what you there, mean. trust me, there's a lot of good folks out there. But based on the history of Los Angeles, you know what it is. Uh, they like to s- suck you dry and then throw you out to the walls. You know, the minute they don't can't get no more out of you, then you know, then they uh, they start the smear campaign. You know, it's crazy that the music industry can can you know chew up and spit out so much talent. Yeah, as as, as it's horrible. I mean, and, and and it's unfortunate. That's customarily and standard. <laughs> but it's it's also super inspiring that 
like you know going back not to repeat myself too much but the fact that you guys are like a total anomaly to that you know you guys have you know i mean i, I talk about this with my friends a lot is you know having a, a music career as an artist is it's not there's not many in any generation you know that you can look back and be like yeah that's they are that generation's this you know what i mean like you know, that's exactly what you guys are. You know, are you this next generation's De La Soul or are you going to be like what you guys have created from, you know, what your spe- your career is like 30 years? 30, yeah. I mean, up to the date of, I guess, three feet high and rising, yeah, 30 years. But, but even before well, that? But before then, yeah, it's like, I mean, our friendship goes back 35 years. Um, Poss and Dave may a little bit, little bit longer, but what my relationship with them is... 35. I moved to Long Island in 84. From? From Brooklyn, Brooklyn. New York. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, it's been, and here it is, it's been a trip because I have been trying to make music in the music business since I was 11, 12 years old. And um, in particular, hip hop. And moving to Long Island, I thought I was moving further away from my dream. Mm-hmm. Especially and, Brooklyn. Yeah. Especially when it was at that time happening in the boroughs, you know? you like, Birth. this is where it, you need to be for this to go down. And and um, the goal was trying to get on radio. You know, for anybody who grew up in the boroughs, you know, it was all about trying to get that record up to Mr. Magic, Red Alert, Chuck Chill Out, you know, and then later Molly Mall, you know? So it was about being on radio, you know? And I thought I was moving further away from that when I moved to Long Island, because here it is, Long Island is the countryside mm. of New York. It's like Westchester, New York, you know mm. what I mean? So you, you, you felt like you had no credibility going out to the burbs, you know? But that's where it all happened, you know? And I give, you know, I represent Long Island to the fullest, although I grew up in Brooklyn, I represent Long Island to the fullest because that's where it started. That's where the change happened. That's where where Dayla began. You know? Uncle Rick. <laughs> oh, Rick. <laughs> was he long? Uh, Rick, Rick. Nah, Rick from the Bronx. Oh, Honestly, Rick. Rick is from the Bronx. My, okay. my my sister's from the Bronx. Okay. You know, this was the stint of, you know, that stint in my life is when we were just moving around a lot, you know, and I was poor, really poor, living different places, um, um, and my mother was just. She had a really nice boyfriend at the time. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, yeah, we were up in the Bronx pretty often. And um, Rick was um, like a big brother, man. That's all I could truly say. Like, you know, he reached out, I'll say, like five years ago. Rick, Rick had reached out because he heard me tell a story to someone, and he, he reached out. He hit me on, like, Facebook somewhere. Uh, and um, I was like, I was excited to hear from him because he, uh, I guess he was surprised I remembered him like that, you know. It's funny how you do, though, the people that, that change your life so, you know, so monumentally, they, I don't think they feel, they don't think they've done that much. Yeah. Like, I have a friend who, t- who showed me how to DJ and he's, he's always like, oh, you always say I'm doing this. You, you, you showed me everything. But he's like, you showed me stuff, you know. Yeah. And I was like, but it's. I mean, I also attribute it to some other guys, but he was the one who allowed me to touch his equipment. Yeah. You know, I had other people who wouldn't let me do it. I had other, my, I, I, I had an uncle, 
you know, who would <laughs> who would scream on me, you know, because he knew I touched his stuff when he was away. Yeah. And I would try to put it back the way he had it, but somehow he knew I touched his shit, you know what I mean? Whether it was my fingerprints on the dust covers or whatever. I'm like, I was always like, how did he know? I did put everything back, you know? I mean, but, that's that's a sacred thing too, a man's hi-fi, like his, like his car, you know? Yeah, so, you know, my uncle, and his name was Cliff. Um, he was definitely one of my main inspirations as well, but he wouldn't really let me touch it. That was the thing, you know? But he was the uncle that gave me his records oh, later. Sweet. Yeah, he gave me his records later. Like, somewhere in the 90s, he gave me his records. He was like, yo, man, he was kind of done with DJing. He actually became a hell of a photographer and an accountant, <laughs> you know. Um, but he was one of the baddest DJs in Brooklyn as well. He was my uncle who lived in Bushwick. So, you know, but he was the one that would not let me touch <laughs> nothing, you know. But, yeah, those was a, that was that stint in my life that was uh, – very influential, you know. And then when I moved to Long Island, it was like, damn. But then things started to happen. Meeting my guys, meeting Parson Dave in school, actually summer school. Then meeting Paul at the parties. Paul was DJing lots. Paul was DJing. Paul was already the DJ by 85. Paul was the DJ for Stetsasonic. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Um, Paul was always going out to the city doing battles and stuff like that. Um, I think Kid Flash was one of his good friends, and he was just showing up at a lot of places. Oh, um, Easy, Easy G from Original Concept. Remember the group? group? Knowledge me, I'm a the DJ from that group. He was also a badass DJ. Um, I want to say his name is Easy G. Him and Paul was very close as well. They were battle DJs. And um, Paul linked up with Stutz Sonic somehow, became a member of the group, and then he was constantly on tour, coming back and forth. He would show up at the neighborhood parties. Paul would do like 15, 20 minutes of some tricks until guys was trying to record him. to Sell know, their tapes? Well, steal his routines. Oh, yeah. That was always the bullshit, um, recording them to kind of learn his cuts and stuff like that. So he would, minute um, somebody had their eye on that, then Paul would get off the set, you know. Um, but seeing Paul at these parties, and we developed a relationship, I got kind of known pretty quick around the neighborhood, um, behind DJing, sharing my records, playing in the park as far as basketball and stuff like that, and then a couple of fights here and there, you know, who's this new dude? He just beat up so-and-so, you know. Get your rep. You know, it, well, I wasn't looking for it. Just, you know, you know, when you're the new dude in town, everybody's trying to touch your chest, you know. So my chest was constantly getting tested. And I came up on the top side a lot, you know. Even if I didn't come up on the top side, I, I retaliated accordingly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You can catch everybody one by one, you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, I was relentless in that kind of shit. And, and then, um, yeah, Paul heard about me. I heard about Paul, obviously. And then um, we really connected over a song we were working on with a mutual friend. Um, it's an artist by the name of Gangsta Beat. 
he went to actually he was in high school with Paul. He was in the same grade as Paul. By the time I got to the high school, Paul already had graduated. I think my first year up to the high school, that was the year he graduated the year before that. Um, he graduated with my uncle and the mutual friend, Gangsta B. Gangsta B, I end up meeting through my uncle because he used to come by my house. He heard me DJ. He heard me messing around with ideas in the crib. Also, he knew me from the block, from hustling and things like that. And he kind of took me under his wing a little bit, you know, as an older dude, you know. Well, he was trying to take me under his wing. <laughs> I don't think nobody really had the ability of taking me under their wing. Like, I tried the wing thing for a minute, and I'm like, I don't like how you flying, B. <laughs> As you do. I don't you like know. how you flying, B. You know, I got my own wings over here, you know. So I was always treated like, you know, with the older guys, I always was treated like um, a young cat who was just pretty mature for my age, you know. Um my music teacher at the time, because I, I was um, taking music in junior high and high school, uh, I played in the band. Um, and my music teacher, Everett Collins, who also was a high school friend of my mom, and um, he, um, he, uh, he wrote songs for um, Osley Brothers. Wow. And he wrote songs for um, Surface. Oh, the group surface. like Fallen in Love, Surface? Um, oh. You know, Happy, Happy. Fallen in Love. Yeah, yeah Fallen in yep. Love. I think he co-wrote Fallen in Love. That's the he, jam. He wrote Closer Than Close. He wrote Smooth Sailing for the Osley Brothers. Wow. Um, so he started an independent label called Alexadon Records. He named it after his daughters that he had. And, um, and, uh, Gangsta B was the artist he was trying. Gangsta B had this style that was almost like Run from Run DMC. And I just gave it a shot, man. You know, knowing that this is what he was trying. It was my introduction to the studio. It was something in the direction of hip hop, you know. And my music teacher was involved. And then out of the clear blue, they did this rendition of... Um, Seven Minutes of Funk. Yep. Which was like an R&B swing kind of format. This is like... The whole darn family? It was almost like... It was pre... It was pre-New Jack Swing. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> this was like... They were R&B dudes, you know? Trying to get in... The rap in, on, Getting the rap game on yep. an independent level, you know? And... um the version of Seven Minutes Funk was just horrible. It wasn't good, you know. It was it wasn't good, you know. Much as I, I wanted it to be, it just wasn't good, you know. the The song was a well constructed song, but it just wasn't a good song, man. And then Paul came in and he remixed it, and I did some foolish ass beatboxing on it and shit like that. And try to make a long story short, we take a lunch break. I go with Paul. He pulls me to the side and go, yo, man, what do you think about what's going on? When I actually, when I think about it in hindsight, that was Paul trying to get out of it, mm. you know? Because I think he felt like he did all he can do. 
Now what I'm ex- now what we both experienced in the studio was like it's a waste of time now. It's not what you wanted. So he was definitely trying to figure out his exit. I didn't know that at the time. So but when I me knowing Paul now, that was his asking me what was up to figure out what his strategy was going to be. And um when he asked me, I was like, "Look, man, I don't really like what's going on. I'm here." trying to figure out my opportunity, you know. They don't let me touch anything in the studio but this synclave keyboard, and that's it, and there's no turntables, there's no records, there's nothing else around that's, you know, associated to what we're trying to do here. Um, Yeah, and I'm like, yo, and I don't like the song. I just don't like it, you know. And Paul kind of chuckled and was like, you know, I guess the brutal honesty out of me, especially when we just met, you know. And then uh, we went from there, you know. We kept talking. He was like, yeah. He's like, I don't know what they're trying to do, blah, blah, blah. I was like, look, man. I was like, look, I'm just trying to figure out. I'm working on something else with two other guys, you know. No one at this time even knew Poss and Dave Rat. Like, we were kind of like private with our thing, you know. Um I said, yeah, I got some stuff I want to play you. He was like, yo, you keep saying that every time you see me. He was like, you got any of that stuff with you now? I was like, no, I don't. I said, I don't bring that. I don't bring the music that I'm doing with them around these guys. I was like, it's total apples and oranges. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? I was like, I never brought it around because when I'm listening to what we're doing here, it don't even equate, you Mm -hmm. know? So, but trying to figure out the way in. You know, so we kind of left off that day just kind of aloof, you know, you know, not sure if we going to return or not. But we did have a heartfelt on how we felt about what we were dealing with. Then Paul came up to the school a couple of days later, just passing through. Um, around this time, I could say the only two people that were allowed to come up to our school without having to worry about being cops being called on them for trespassing was Prince Paul and Bismarcky. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, Bismarcky's from Long Island? Biz is from everywhere. I mean, he primarily grew up in Long Island. Um, I don't really know Biz's story too much. I don't. I think Biz was a foster child at some point. So he was moving around different homes when he was young. And Long Island was a big stint, you know, um, in his growth from, from a t- his teenage years, you know. He used to come up to our school religiously, giving out flyers. He actually knew a lot of, I mean, him and Paul was close. Um, it was another DJ in our neighborhood by the name of Divine um, that Biz was close with, you know, Paul Carey, you know, superstar. These are like Long Island greats. Biz was around these guys a lot, and Biz used to give out a lot of flyers up at the school. And by him being so char- charismatic and funny, you know, the principal would allow him to be up there, you know. He didn't cause no trouble. And, of course, Paul's from Amityville. Mm. So, so and with Paul doing what he's doing in the music business and still coming up to the school. It was like a good role model. It was kind of a good look, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, but he came up there one day and he was like, yo, what's up? What's going on? Like, I was like, nothing. <laughs> I'm really supposed to be going to the next class. I was like, nothing. What you doing? You know, he's like, nah, I just came up here. He's like, see what's going on. He's like, what's up? I was like, it's like nothing. He's like, let's ride. 
I rode out with him. And Paul at the time was driving like this sky blue Grand Prix, like 70, 77 Grand Prix. He used to always buy these cars and paint them up, hook them up, put a sound system in it, put rims on them. He used to, like that was a Long Island thing, hooking up cars and shit, you know. Um, we rode out. He playing me um, stuff on the In Full Gear album before the In Full Gear album comes out. And um, and then he also start playing me stuff that didn't make the album, you know? And I'm like, wow, stuff is crazy. And it, and it was like along the lines of the things we have been working on via... That's a, that's a Sonic record? That's a yeah. Sonic record, you know? Like this is stuff like it falls in line with what we doing in the crib, you know? And that's when I was like, yo, man, I really got to play you some stuff. He was like, let's go get it right now. So we go to my house. We go get the cassettes. <laughs> I get these cassettes, and I played them plug tuning like five different ways. <laughs> um, I played them the idea of Magic Number, which was produced by Paz. Wow. Um, I played them the idea of Daisy Age, um, which was produced by me. Um, I played him the idea of Ghetto Thing, which was produced by Dave. And that even at that time, the bass line was still the same, but the drum track was different, you know? Um, the, the drum track was actually um, a Dr. Rhythm drum machine when I played it for him. When we finally did it in the studio, we used drum loops. Okay. Um, uh, I played him a few things. Potholes on my lawn was another one, wow. which was a collaborative effort on the group. Um, shit, I, I played him a few things, and and he was like, "Yo," when he listened to it, when he heard it all, he was like, "Yo, man, I need to have a meeting with y'all." And out the gate, he was like, "Look, I can't make no promises, but we will take this to the studio and we'll clean this up," you know. Make it pro. He's like, yo, he's like, I think I could do something. I could, I could add some things to what y'all have. I mean, it was an excitement. Over, it was an overwhelming excitement on both our parts. You know, he's a bulb went off in him. Mind you, I'm spending a moment with Paul at this time where he's playing me the In Full Gear album, but then he saw he's also lightly expressing his gripes about the album and things that are, aren't making the album and things that aren't making the album because he felt like it wasn't making the album because he produced it. And I can understand that feeling. I get it, you know, based on the dynamics of what Stetsasonic also was at that time. Because that's like eight. How many people in Stetsasonic? It's like six people in the band. Right. And, um, yeah, I could see just the dynamics of the group. You know, and he was a newcomer. They kind and of, also yeah. being a newcomer, not just new. I mean, they all got signed at the same time. But yeah, I guess out of the relationship, he was the new one and the youngest one. Mm -hmm. You know, so that all played the part. And when he was playing the ideas that weren't making the album, I'm like, yo, this was crazy. You know, and I'm feeling his pain. You know, and um. It just kind of lent to going to get them demos. And then when that bulb went off in him, which like was surprising to me because I'm nervous playing him the stuff, but I'm like, I'm going to play it. 
because I think this is my shot, you know. I played it for Paul, and he got excited about it. I got more excited because he was excited. I'm like, he's like, I need to have a meeting with you guys. I felt like I was really on at that point. You know what I mean? Like, he's like, we need to have a meeting. He's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get you guys a deal, but I'm going to try. He said, but we're going to go in the studio. He's like, we definitely going to go in the studio. Because I'm playing him like second and third generation tapes with hiss all over it from just dubbing it and dubbing it and dubbing it just to make a song, you know? Pause tapes. Yeah, yeah, pause tapes, all of that, you know? So we finally started putting some money together, going to the studio to do plug tuning, freedom of speak. Um, that's where things start to go from there. We did those two songs, and it was Daddy-O and Paul who started shopping our demo around. Um, long story short, I mean, went to every independent label at the time, First priority being one of them, because Milk and Giz was on fire at that time, and um, but landed at Tommy Boy, you know, the opportunity of going at Tommy Boy, it just felt right, especially that comfort zone of being with Paul, you know, we could kind of springboard off of whatever decisions Stets Sonic is making over there, you know, until things started to jump. Things started really, I mean, we started to begin, we started to, to have success that Stetsasonic wasn't even having. So things started to trump <laughs> what they were doing, and we really had to start stepping up our game on educating ourselves on what we're dealing with here, you know. But yeah, the whole connection to Paul and whatever his gripes were with the group at the time and us just trying to get in, you know. Um, yeah, and, and and totally being frustrated with the Gangsta B project, you know what I mean? That 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 lent to the door opening up for us and Paul, you know. It's so it's so rad to hear like how that has that story has worked because you know you've you've done similar things to what Paul was able to do with you guys, you know, with Mose and all these sorts of things in a way of mentoring and opening up doors well i don't know if paul will ever recall this or remember this but you know uh to this very day i'm so appreciative and thankful for prince paul i mean my relationship definitely you know i i, I know the group feel the same way but it definitely started with me and paul you know um they didn't even know paul at the time you know what i mean i was the one running into him all over the Ville, just off of other mutual friends, mm -hmm. you know? And... Um, connecting his DJs, too. Yeah, connecting his DJs. Yeah. Really connecting his DJs. It's a lot um, to be said for that, eh? Yeah, and I'm um, very thankful of that relationship because it all led to this, you know? Um, even the things he taught me, you know? And I, I asked him, you know, what could I ever really truly do to repay him? And all he said to me was, just do the same thing for somebody else. And that's all I've been trying to do since then, you know. And I think it's naturally in my nature, you know, mm. to help people out, you know. Especially when it's um, it's this thing here, you know. Mm. You know, I mean, I've helped in a lot of other things, but when it comes to this music, I actually get excited about it. You know, I think I have a knack of seeing something in somebody that they don't even really see in themselves, 
you know. Give them the confidence. And trying to help them bring it out, you know. And, um, yeah, that's where you got most deaf. That's where you got Fife Dog. That's where you got a tribe called Quest, period, you know. Um, and here it is. Tribe was coming anyway, but I think it was something we were doing that instilled a certain confidence in Tribe, you know, because Tribe was on the jungle, but there was a lot of that path on the professional level that they followed us, mm. you know. They could have easily went with Warner Brothers or Red Alert Productions, but they tried to do something different, you know. I, well, here it is. We were already doing something different, you know. And um, uh, a lot of people were wondering why we didn't continue to go with, like, Red Alert Productions and the whole Jungle Brothers alma mater. But I keep having to remind people I didn't come in the game through Jungle Brothers or Red Alert. I came in through Prince Paul and Stetsasonic. Mm. So my business model and structure was a little different. Who I was paying attention to and who I was following was a little different from who I was hanging out with, you know. And who I was hanging out with had something else going on, you know. And I was paying attention to what they were doing. Um, I felt like what they were doing worked for them. I don't think it would work for us. I didn't have a record like I House You. You know what I'm saying? That's a big record. But... I had plug tuning. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if this is the time of my life, I ain't even have me, myself, and I. I just had plug tuning. You know what I'm saying? So it was all different for us than it was for the Jungle Brothers. Not only that, Jungle Brothers also even had an album at that time. So they were just at a whole different space and time than where we were at, you know? Career-wise. Yeah, career-wise. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even quite a career for me yet. Yeah. You know? To start now. Yeah. Just get my feet wet and getting some neighborhood love, you know? P-Fine playing my record before Red Alert could even play my record, you know? When Red Alert finally played my record, that's when I was like, oh, I've really arrived, <laughs> you know? But even in that, yo, but even in that, I was pretty much, like, knowing all the war stories of Grandmaster Flash and Cold Crush and all of that, you know, rappers who was making records and still had day jobs, you know what I'm saying? I Those stories were very vivid to me. So I knew, like, I was pretty much prepared to go to the military, you know what I mean? Like, I was still in high school when Plug Tuning came out. So I was in my last year ready to graduate and move on with life, you know, as such, you know, and... um the opportunity kept coming back. And when the opportunity came back to do Potholes on My Lawn and Jennifer and then leading to doing the, the album, you know, that trumped finishing high school. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, Trump, you know, I, or next thing you know, I was cutting school. And I, I, I was supposed to graduate in 88, which I ended up graduating in 89 because I went, to record three feet high, three feet high and rising. That's now, the way to graduate, right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. I'm man, Mace, um, thank you for sharing all those stories, nah, man. Nah, brother, anytime, Matt. You the dude, man. You are the you dude. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you my guy, man. For real, like I chop it up with you without the mic. You know how you do. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
I always look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, this uh, yeah, let's let's get out and enjoy some uh, yeah, South by Southwest. Yeah, yeah, for real. I had no idea the weather was gonna be great this year. Twenty-seven. You or, know what I mean? Yeah. I think I'm a, a little overdressed <laughs> in my gangstar sweatshirt. <laughs> Shout out to Primo. Yeah, I'm gonna stay yeah. hot just to represent. Yeah, yeah. Primo's my man. Primo's working on the next Daylight record along with Pete Rock. Stay you know, tuned for that. Look out for that one. Look out for AOI 3, which is a record dedicated to the DJ like we intended. Um, the subtitle is called De La Sound System. Oh, awesome. Yes. So look out. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Maceo. We look oh, forward to these. Oh, um, Bill Ray, y'all. Bill Ray. Look out for Bill Ray. Who's Bill Ray? Bill Ray is a dope MC that is under the De La wing. I'm producing his music. Um, we got some records out now. He got a song out called Cut the Check with uh, Sadat X on it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Brand new um, Yeah. Um, a record called On My Mind that's really about to come with um, with Pevin Everett. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we got a lot of great music coming, and he's one of the MCs that hold up strong next to most Def, next to Murder Mook, next to Busta Rhymes. I mean, like, yo, he's on fire who is this again bill ray check him out on check him out on every uh streaming medium that's out spotify uh what apple music uh title yeah 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 check him out you got music up there right now and yeah he's down with maceo awesome yeah <laughs> and if you're down with maceo well it's a good, good place to be I, I i would like to say yeah i think so <laughs> awesome man thanks again yeah. Thank you, bro. All right. Peace.